Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Nick Davenport, aka Mr. Mental Muscle. And today on the Mental Muscle Podcast, we have a special guest today, Pierce Kukisi. He's ex-military army ranger. He's a mental coach. He uses neuroscience to train clients in athletics, executive coaching with military and all types of populations. So I want to let you get into it, give a quick overview about yourself, and we can just talk shop because we both work in psychology and neuroscience performance fields. And I think this will be a good episode where people can see all types of ways to get their minds right. Yeah, appreciate you having me. So let me give the the real down and dirty quick introduction since people can find that on a host of other podcasts and websites as well. But uh, so growing up, I was really into athletics, really into physical performance and the sports that I ended up playing had a huge mental performance aspect to it as well. So I played uh, water polo, did jujitsu, played rugby in college. Um, and then towards the end of college, really decided that, you know, I started to learn what military spe special operations units were, Navy SEALs, Army Green Berets, Army Rangers, Marine Special Operations, and it just seemed to click, right? And so I decided to go down that path. I enlisted in the Army, had a fast track to the 75th Ranger Regiment, which is the Army's Special Operations Unit, did all the fun stuff there, um, deployed multiple times all over the Middle East. Um, and then came back, right? So during the time in the military, I really had to foster physical toughness, mental toughness, all of these things. But it wasn't until I got out that I started to realize, oh, I might not be so tough, right? I have not mastered the art of resilience, which is the ability to bounce back from difficult mental states, to be able to reset our baseline so we're not constantly in this fight or flight, right? So I spent a ton of time after that learning about resilience, learning about the emotional side, the mental side much more. Uh, I started studying under some of the top coaches that lead guys in the NFL and the UFC. Um, I studied under neuroscientists, psychologists, and then started to, to take some work for them as well. Um, everything seemed to really click. And then went on to my own mental, you know, and emotional and physical performance coaching practice. Basically, all the things that I had used to fix myself initially, and that I still continue to use. Um, and now working a lot with, uh, with executives from different companies across all different industries, still some athletes as well. Um, I'm out in Los Angeles and that's the quick down and dirty. Nice. Good stuff. And we talked off camera about this. So like I said, I want to go about this a different way. So I'll start off asking you this, you talked about mental toughness, you talked about resilience and I personally, and correct me if you uh, think the same way or not, but I personally see a lot of people confuse mental toughness with stoicism or just being unbothered. And I personally preach that it's not necessarily being unbothered, just like you say, how you bounce back, how do you adapt? So what would you say is really mental toughness? Because a lot of people think it's just not being affected. And for someone with your background, obviously you've seen some stuff that could make some people shatter and fall apart. And like you said, you have to build yourself back up even after getting back home. So what is mental toughness? Yeah. So of course people have to, they'll build in their own definition of what toughness means. But what I saw, the analogy that I like to use is that like a diamond and a lacrosse ball, right? A diamond is what we would consider, you know, the hardest rock, right? It seems tough, but eventually under a certain amount of pressure, that diamond will break. The difference with a lacrosse ball is it doesn't matter, you know, what I throw it at, how fast it's going to bounce right back in the exact same form that I threw it, right? Hard rubber ball. And so that's what I find as resilience or the real measure of toughness. So most people's measure of toughness of, hey, it's just not affecting me. That's what I thought too. We, we may think we may be tough and we may think issues of the past or what's going on now doesn't affect us. 
but it does even if we don't realize it. Our bodies and minds are these like incredibly intricate, knowledgeable systems. And we get energy that gets stored, right? So if you have some sort of emotion, you can think you're blocking it out. But what I noticed from myself was I was just stuffing it down, which means it gets stored in my body, which means it creates personality changes. It creates behavior changes, the way that I think changes. It could also change neurochemistry, right? So to me, that's not really toughness. There has to be the ultimate measure of toughness involves a little bit of a softer side. So in military terms, right, when we have to perform, we need to be able to compartmentalize emotion, right? We need to be able to essentially stuff things down. If you and I are walking down a hallway together uh, and we're clearing a building and we're best friends, we grew up since birth and now we're in the same unit, we're walking down this hallway and you get shot and go down, I'm leaving you there. Why? Because I have to finish the fight to get rid of the threat so that myself and the other guys don't get hurt as well. And we can actually have a chance of going back to help you. That's an example of compartmentalizing and being tough in the moment. The problem is, is if I never take a look at that emotion in time that I stuffed down, then it will start having negative impacts on me, right? So toughness being the ability to work through physical, mental, and emotional stresses in the moment, but also be able to reset your state so that those don't affect you in a negative way. Hopefully nice. that made sense. I make complete sense. So that makes me follow up with this because I've seen this a lot with sport coaches. I know you work with athletes too, and you might've seen this too. I noticed that sport coaches, when they think mental toughness, I actually had to get on a high school coach about this. He literally would either run them into the ground or make them do reps of push-ups or something that would physically exhaust them. And while I get his logic, and you've probably seen this too, and I know in the military, this is a thing as well. But from what you know now and your experience doing what you do, how do you think that uh, carries over? Because I, like I say, there's a place for it, but I think too many people rely on that overexhaustion before actually, you know, getting mentally tough is only on, can I exhaust you? Yeah. So I think the key there is the intention behind it. A lot of the times coaches will just run the athletes into the ground and the athletes don't necessarily understand the purpose of it. And it eventually goes too far. I think drills like that, depending on the sport, depending on the application, right? In the military, it made complete sense because you had to know how to deal with extreme levels of exhaustion. You had to know how you react, right? So these are really, really good tools, actually. But if you're going at them intentionally, a lot of coaches just say, run, keep running, keep running. Instead of saying, hey, this is our once a week where we're going to start pushing the upper limits of what we think we can do physically. The purpose of this is to engage ourselves mentally so we can start to understand how we think, act, and respond when our bodies are under immense amounts of stress. If you come at it that way, then the athletes are looking at it as a, as a training ground, right? And now they start to get really good at it, right? Now, at the afterwards, you can do reflection. Okay, your heart rate started to get to a certain level. What types of thoughts did that start to inject for you? Did you notice yourself slowing down? Did you notice yourself thinking about quitting? Did you do anything to, to essentially, you know, reset your nervous system, maybe in the intervals between sprints or whatever it is we're doing? So I don't think that those are bad. I think that most coaches don't. This was the problem that we had in the military, too. A lot of the things that they did were, were good. They just didn't really understand why or weren't able to articulate it. So if a coach can articulate it to the players, 
and have a specific reason behind it. And then of course, allow enough time for reflection and recovery. Then I think those tools are, are good. But a lot of times people just do it because they feel it's the only way to, to discipline an athlete or the only way to get them tougher. So basically intent awareness, that's something I personally see a lot. And that makes me think of this, like you've probably seen it in your line of work as well. Is like, there's a lot of like compartmentalizing and grouping together, mental coaching, life coaching, clinical psychology, neuroscience. And I know we both kind of dabble in a mixture of things, but I think it gets to the point where people aren't understanding which is used for what, because we just like say, go with these, these trends or these different things. Like people use the word trauma a lot, emotional intelligence. Um, biohacking, all these things get thrown around and it's like, there's no intent behind it. So I'm gonna ask you, uh, what is your take on like biohacking? Cause I know people usually say, oh, you can hack your body, you hack your brain. And obviously there is physiological aspects to that. So I agree on that, but I think it's become more of a buzzword. What do you think on that? Yeah, I think so too, right? There are, you know, in, in the realm of biohacking, there are probably a thousand different things that we could do or maybe more, right? And there's all these different, things that people are using and supplements and nootropics and things for their muscles and this and that. My view is that the majority of the biohacking things that are out there don't, they're, they're still based on the symptom and they don't go after the root cause for the, for the most part. Right. So the biggest and most important piece to all of this is asking the questions of, okay, where do we think this, whatever we're hacking for is actually coming from because the human body is one system, right? So if we are trying to resolve some symptom with a biohack, it may help a little bit with the symptom, but it doesn't fix the underlying cause. So I call a lot of these like Band-Aid solutions as well, right? Uh, even things that I use very regularly, like meditation, like breath work, like mobility, whatever that is. If you think about it, if I think about it, back to kind of my, you know, my military terms, it's almost like a bleed or a gunshot wound, right? Those things are band-aids. They will help you stop the bleeding on the surface, but you still have an internal bleed that's going on. And we're not actually going to fix the problem until we go deep inside and understand where it's coming from. So I just think for the majority of, of what we think of as biohacking, and of course, we're covering a broad range, there might be other things in there and, and people will have their own opinions, but typically they're they're focused more on the symptom instead of the root cause. And they don't tend to look at the, the whole person as one. It's just kind of one fix here and one fix there. Yeah, I agree. And I'm use the term holistic. And I know that word gets thrown around a lot, but usually people mean it in a different way, more like new age type stuff, but meaning holistic, you know, everything. And I see on your page, on your website, you talk about the neuroscience, you talk about the actual physiological responses the body goes through, the actual mental mindset states. And that's why I wanted to uh, contact you because I'm the same way, because going back to my previous question, I think there's a big segregation. I've been in this industry probably 12 years, and I've noticed there's always this divide. I don't know, like in any people you work with or associates, you notice like there might be some butting heads because in my line of work, I, I have to work with a different like strength coaches, neuroscientists, and I'll see sometimes on the team, they're like, we should do this. No, we should do that. And they have this whole domain specific approach versus like, no, all of this makes sense. Like, why would you dismiss one or the other? Yeah, I think what we've gotten into in whether it's training or whether it's in medicine is everybody becomes extremely specialized. And we're typically going to the specialists first to fix a problem once again. 
I've tried to flip that model on its head, which is just like you're doing, which I think is incredibly important, is no, let's take a look at the entire person and all of the modalities that we want to use to help them and slowly try to do a little bit of a science experiment and a fact-finding mission to find what specialists we may need to use, right? So you being kind of primary and then the specialist helping with one specific problem that you can monitor to help the whole person. What we're typically doing is going to very specific specialists that at no fault of their own, right? Because they've had to learn one specific area. They typically don't understand the whole body, the whole mind, the whole person, or they just haven't taken the time to ask the questions because they're focused on doing one thing with, let's say all the athletes at a team, right? So again, this is a tricky situation. I think this is more culturally that we try to find the expert in one area instead of having one advisor that understands the majority of these areas. And that's what I've tried to be, right? I'll work with somebody and we'll go through and we'll do a little fact finding and we'll say, okay, I've probably got, gotten to the, the extent of my knowledge in this area. Let's help find you an expert to go even deeper and then report back to me so I can help you understand how it fits into the bigger picture. Yeah, I think people are so scared to be a jack of all trades. And I agree, I'm the same way. I actually have an intern that's just starting with me and she asked me a few questions. I told her like, I cover a lot of things, but sometimes I got to refer out. Like if it's clinical, I don't cover that. So they'll go to a clinical psychologist if it gets that deep. Or if it's more optometry related, they're going to go to a vision therapist. But I do have a lot of things that precede that until and if they need all that. So this, like say, this specialization is just like with sports, right? I know you mentioned you played rugby. I played football, basketball, track. Usually try everything and you tend to get better at others because it influences the next, right? So I yeah. think that approach makes the most sense. Yeah, 100%. And so, you know, hopefully this, this type of approach that we're taking starts to permeate throughout other areas as well. Um, but it's difficult, right? Because right now the culture is a little bit different. Um, so I'm curious, how, like, how, do you, how do you go about navigating that typically if you're dealing with a team? Honestly, that's a good question because we talked about it off camera a little bit, but that approach is hard because like you said, the, the current climate for mental performance usually gets relegated only to mental health. You hear that term mental health matters. When I hear mental health personally, I hear all things, like you said, all encompassing. That's your neuroscience side of things, how your brain actually functions. That's your mindset. That's your physical. How do you able to push your body? And that's how I do it. So when I get in like, say an organization and I'll use my MMA because it's probably the perfect example. They'll have a strength coach, a skills coach for four different types of combat, jujitsu, wrestling, striking, boxing, whatever. And I'm at the bottom of that totem pole. There's been times where it's like, I feel like a stepchild that's unwanted. Mm -hmm. And it's like, just like you said, the, the, the narrative is not there yet. So what I'll do is I'll kind of have to play the game of like, make it more appealing. So I'll have cognitive drills where I have these tasks on screens and get technology involved, but it'll have like jujitsu chokeholds and have to identify which chokehold in a flash real quick and they have to see it and say oh that was a rear naked or that was and now it's like I got that buy-in because now they're like oh that looks like what we're doing and then next thing you know now I can ease in with like hey have you heard of box breathing no what's that you feel me so it's like that's one yeah. hill I've had to personally go over like we mentioned I said to you I work with Aetna and with them most of their contracts are with general pop and that's a hard audience to sell because their first thing is, why does this matter? An athlete would at least be like, uh, I don't get it, but the goal is to make me better. Or a soldier or a police, they'll at least look at it like, eh, whatever this is, but it'll get me better. But a general pop has helped me because they are a hard sell. 
but I've kind of gotten better at saying, okay, this is what it does. Put it this way. And this is how it's going to make you better. Your brain, your body, your mind will get more resilient. Like you said, to stress it won't stop it. But when you're in that stressful state, can you bounce back? And I know I watched the podcast with you and it's like, you said something perfectly because if you put yourself in these hypervigilant states, it becomes your, your default mode, right? And we don't want to become that default. It's like, we need to be able to go there and when it's needed. But if we live there and talk about fight or flight, the stress response, we're just using energy. So I guess from your background, like, what would you say uh, personally and from your, just your career, like, what is a good way to handle stress? I know that's a cliche answer, but, or question, but I'll be curious what you say. Yeah. One of the first things that comes to mind too, is just the importance of, of using these tools early, right? What I noticed from the special operations military cohort was actually no different from what I saw with some athletes and especially people in business, right? High stress business roles, which was just like you said, we have this level of homeostasis, which is kind of like where our nervous system is supposed to be set to. If we live too long at a heightened state without being able to come back down, right? You're living too far in fight or flight or kind of the freeze response, right? If people are dealing with depression or shutdown or anything like that, that ends up becoming our new normal. We actually have this reset of where our nervous system is. And so you get all these people that are incredibly high performing and they don't even realize what's going on. That was the place that I was in, right? It didn't even realize that anything was wrong because it just felt normal. Feeling in fight or flight all the time was normal to me. It was like I couldn't function any other way. So, and what's interesting too is as I started to learn, oh, this is not normal. You need to be able to slow down, relax. It felt really boring. It felt extremely uncomfortable. Now, over time, it has felt more and more comfortable and I've definitely changed a lot. Um, some of the best ways to handle it, right? Let me go with, with two different examples. First is the Band-Aid solutions, like we mentioned before. Those are things that you have at your disposal at any point in time, not reaching for anything in the external, like some sort of drug. Things you have at your disposal, breath, postural changes, visualizations and meditation. Things like that can help you in the moment change your state, take control of the way that you that you feel that affects your thoughts and your behaviors. That you can do at any point in time. Then to really handle stress, right? Like I, I gave the example previously of the you know walking down the hallway next to your buddy um, in the military. In the moment, it's those breathing techniques, it's those visual patterns that help you perform. But afterwards, it's not enough. We have to go into what's behind all of that to essentially remove the emotional load or what I like to call emotional constipation so that it doesn't snowball into something greater. What I use is I call it like mental processing techniques. And it's essentially a series of questioning, like journaling, that allows you to bring the emotion back up to the surface and clear it and change the story that was created in your brain around this event. By changing the story, you essentially change how you feel about it. And it's the same concept of that, you know, like, you know, babies are able to go from happy to frustrated to happy again, because they're able to move the emotion and scream and cry and do whatever. We just don't allow ourselves to do that anymore. I like that. That's a great analogy. And using babies is so great because like you said, they'll be crying for bloody murder and then be giggling two seconds later. And it's like, as we get older, we learn 
all these habits, like always when I teach these things, I'll be, and you probably the same, is like these habits as we grow older teach us to be less and less of that. Like we're yeah. able to get in, even from a physical standpoint, a baby can squat down like a toddler at least, can squat down in perfect form. They've never seen a squat. Their body just does it. Same thing with their mental response. They just adapt. And it's funny, something so small, but then we get 20, 30, 40 years old, and you would think logically we have more sense now. But yet we're yeah. doing worse than a baby would adapt because we learned all these behaviors and these coping mechanisms that, that say, hey, when I'm mad, go into a corner and pout. Now, I'm big on this, like, don't just neglect the, the frustration. Obviously, attend to it. But if we stay there, then we have a problem. That's when it becomes, you know, like you're going to get mad. You're going to have stressful days. Like this whole, it goes back to like when I mentioned this whole divide in these industries is, and I think that's what's hurting. What we're trying to do is people chalk everything up to be positive or a motivational speaker or a coach. And it's like, I can tell you all happy, go nut, uh, uh, go lucky things all day, but is that going to really make you better? Yeah. Well, it, it gets complicated. And what you meant, you mentioned earlier the idea of stoicism, which I think is is an important one too, because unfortunately we can't act like the baby can, especially when we're older, right? That's essentially the the base state to be able to feel the emotion, process it, and move on. Unfortunately, when we get to adulthood, we cause some real damage if we're doing that. So the idea of stoicism, I think a lot of people typically get wrong. It's not the blocking out of emotion, it's the ability to view the emotion or the thought in a third person point of view in the moment, so that you buy yourself a window of time to decide how you want to act on it. Right? Because we have wide ranges of emotions and thoughts and feelings. We just get to choose how we act. Now, if we decide not to allow that emotion to to basically take a hold of us, to penetrate us, to go with it because it's a it's not appropriate for the time. And I think it's important to address that later on. And vice versa, if it is an appropriate time, you're by yourself in your room and you want to let, you know, whatever come up, come up, great, let it happen. Um, so that's where I see the difference. And a lot of people's stoicism, I think, gets misconstrued. Uh, and I think the most important piece is that we're essentially building kind of this observer ability so that we get to be in control yeah that's a good point because that's basically what emotional regulation right and this is like with me when people bring me in and i do like some of my cognitive like i told you before like that's like an upsell for me and i'll do drills that work on inhibition and executive function it's like i'll tie that in because how you respond to this brain training task is more than likely how you respond to a lot of things not saying it's guaranteed you're going to flip out but i've had people top level athletes lose their cool doing something that at face value looks like a game. Now I make yeah. a little more intense than a game, but it's like at the end of the day, it's no like dire consequences. Even with my tactical uh, police and military populations, when I work with them doing some of these drills, same thing. And it's like, like you mentioned, like this is life or death. Like this is something that could have very dire implications if it goes wrong. So it's like, if this is what flushes you, it's not saying that you can't handle your cool outside of this, but it's like, I want this to be your default mode that, like you said, you know when to, let it out, you know, when to pull it back, you know? And so that's stoicism definition. That's a good way to put it. I haven't really heard it put like that uh, too much. And what you kind of just described, I describe it as like flipping a switch, right? We have to be able to turn it on and turn it off. That was the issue with the military special operations guys. They were always on and they did not know how to turn it off. Or maybe it was that they didn't know how to turn it off. They wouldn't allow themselves to turn it off, right? We have different personalities. 
people are always talking about the authentic self and everything. And I understand that. But the reality is, is you act differently with your high school friends than you do with your work friends than you do with your girlfriend or boyfriend than you do with your mom. Right? We act, we have these different personas that we put on that are needed for the moment. Right? And everybody does this to a certain degree, at least a little bit. Uh, even great spiritual teachers like Ram Das talk about this concept. So what I like to think about is, especially for the athletes uh, or the military guys or police, is we're putting on this suit, this persona, right? When I would put on my gear, I needed to go into this certain mode where everything was compartmentalized, where it was 100% focus, right? Emotion was not part of that game. But that meant the second I took it off, I needed to find a window of time to allow myself to completely shed. The military working dogs did this the best. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen them, but they wear a little work vest. So they're typically Belgian Malinois dogs. And they're higher energy dogs, but they're playful, right? They'll fetch a ball. They'll cuddle with you in bed. But the second you put that vest on, you didn't want to go anywhere near their face or their mouth, right? They just turned into like this stone cold machine. And so they really knew how to turn it on and turn it back off. And that doesn't necessarily mean in an aggressive way, right? In the military sense, it needed to be, but it could be, it could be for anything. It could be a mother, right? Around her kids. She needs to be a certain way. She needs to hold it together in the chaos of the moment because you got four kids running around the house and things need to happen. But then how do you shed that armor or that jersey or whatever you want to call it and find some time to reset yourself? Yeah, that sounds a lot like, um, are you familiar with the concept called athletic identity? Um, I haven't heard it put that way, but I'm sure it's similar. Probably something you've come across. Yeah, sure, yeah. sure. But like we talk about that a lot with athletic identity, when they tie who they are, their personality traits, their self-worth, their value into their sport performance. So I was going to ask, like, curious if there is a concept, probably a concept, but it might not have a title or not, but with like the tactical population, military and stuff like that. It doesn't matter whether it's tactical or whether it's with, you know, athletes. And I, I honestly don't, I don't think many people do this necessarily consciously. And I didn't do it consciously in the beginning either, but I'll have people essentially create it. Like they're creating a character, like they're, like they're getting to sketch this character in this movie and you get to become that character. You can become whatever you want to become. You just can't stay, you know, if it's, mm -hmm. if it's a warrior, in war, you can't stay like that, right? We got to come back to uh, we got to come back to reality. But yeah, you know, it's something that I did early on too. Was basically like create this persona in my head of what I would be or who I was when I, you know, put the gear on. Yeah, there was a psychologist I saw. I forget his name, but it's probably like a while ago, like ten years ago, it was on YouTube. And the way he uh, put in the words was pretty cool because he was saying he said, um, "Would you be scared of Eldrick?" Would Eldrick be intimidating? I'm like, who's Eldrick? And at the time, I didn't know Tiger Woods' real name. I thought his real name was Tiger. So he's like, you don't know Eldrick. You won't be scared of Eldrick. He was like a nerd. But on that golf course, he's Tiger. And you don't want nothing to do with him on that golf course. So when you put it like that, it's just like what you said, making a character, like, be that character in the action of what you're doing, obviously. But you got it like the dog's best. It comes off. And like that switch, I like that analogy. I use it uh, as well. And it's like, 
think about your electric bill, right? You want to come home and your bill's $500 a month or whatever it is because you don't turn those lights off. So completely right. You're draining that you're draining the reserves, right? So most people find their mental or emotional energy getting drained too. It's because they left the switch on. I love that. So I want to ask this because I heard this as well on a funny enough a YouTube video, great social media, right? And I once again, I don't remember who it was because it was on something. It was not even a podcast. It was just like a clip. And they were saying they were a former Navy SEAL and they were saying at that level, it's talking about like yelling, screaming, being like, what's the word? Because, you know, in sports, especially youth sport, you might see a coach chewing a kid out and it's like it builds character. And he was basically saying at that level, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I heard it in passing, it was like, if you need all that at that point, you're not even supposed to be there. Because I got into like a back and forth a few years ago with a, a lady who's a coach for like a high school basketball team. And she made a post that was a guy who was a, a chewing out a, a athlete. And I put my two cents in. And I'm like, tough love is there. Like I played football, I played very aggressive sports, so I get it. But it's like, is there a certain point where is that just going to be detrimental? Or where do you think, where does that like kind of have to be waned down or maybe it is needed more so? Yeah, I think it depends on how far you take it. And, you know, I, I do think there are different people that respond to different things. So, for example, the ultimate coach would know which players respond to that tough love and which ones don't. Now, that's a lot of pressure to put it on coach. In the military terms, I think the, you know, the guy that you were listening to is right. And it's really only utilized from what I've seen at the very beginnings of training, which is to create as it's the tool is to create as much chaos as possible and to induce as much stress as possible because you're dealing with an activity that is basically stress tolerance, right? A military training course, whether it's basic training or it's a special operations selection or tryout, is essentially a stress tolerance course. That's it. Everybody hears about buds for the SEALs, Rangers have rasps. They're stress tolerance courses. Can we get these guys so stressed out that the majority of them quit and we're left with a pool that we actually want to train. So that's kind of how it's used. You know, you'll get, you'll get it where you've got, imagine three instructors and the guy who's getting chewed out. One instructor is yelling his next set of commands. One instructor is telling him how much he sucks. And the other instructor in the other ear is literally just screaming. <laughs> that's it. No, no, no actual words coming out. And it's to induce kind of the, the chaos that somebody might feel in war. And if you can't deal with an actually non-life-threatening situation, then you shouldn't be there. Now, that's the military purpose. I think beyond that, it eventually, you know, it doesn't serve. Once the guys have proven that they can, they can handle that, then why is it there? Um, but like I said, with athletes, you know, I dealt with a ton of tough love with a, uh, with a water polo coach in high school. And it, it, it made us tough, but it was difficult to deal with. I had a rugby coach that I felt um, the approach was great, where he very rarely used the tough love, right? But when he did, you knew he was serious. And you knew there was a reason behind it. And it was incredibly intense. And it made everybody listen, instead of being like, oh, this is how he always is. And there was a difference in that, right? So he was able to flip that switch back and forth. And I think that makes it more powerful. Um, so, you know, we're, we're talking about scenarios. Uh, you know, we don't know how tough these people are being when we're talking about it. Um, but there's a whole spectrum there. And you kind of have to analyze each situation on its own. Nah, and that's a great answer. I like that you did break it down because a lot of people try to give this one size fits all approach. 
And like you said, with that coach, he needs to know the, the, the individual, the player, the team member. And while it is more work, I've seen this in real time, and I've seen kids get broken down. Like they said, there is some people you can, like me personally, I'll use myself. You could talk me any type of way. It will not change how I do out there. But I had teammates where you can literally look at them the wrong way, and they, they, they you can see their play change. And it's like the coach didn't care, not because he was a jerk, maybe. Maybe he was a jerk, I don't know. But basically, it was like, didn't take the time to say, all right, Nick, I could talk to you like that because he's not going to be bothered by that. But Johnny, yeah. like, he's going to fall apart. And this is the, the fourth quarter with one minute left, and he needs to make this game-winning pass. Should I get on him and get in his ear right now? And they don't because their logic is, if it's under pressure, we need to hype him up. And it's like, maybe that arousal state doesn't yeah. really need to be brought up in that case. I guess we can go into that. Like, But at the same time, I don't mean to cut you off. It's nah, on the player. Of the player needs to understand to needs to learn how to take nothing personal, right? It's just a game. If they play it as it's just a game, they will be more, you know, we talk about peak brain states and flow. They will be more in flow. When you are in, more in flow, you will perform better. So how do we keep ourselves in flow? It has to become a game. And this is an interesting one too, because in the military combat scenario, it wasn't a game. It was life or death. But the problem is, when you're in that life or death mode, you behave different, you perform different. So what, what was important about it? We treated it like a game. And that helped us perform better under pressure. So I think a lot of the responsibility is on the athlete as well. And, uh, you know, organizations being able to bring people in to help the, those athletes train and understand those concepts. I agree. And I guess a lot of times too, I guess where it might fall off in transition, getting those athletes or those performers better is, their practice won't be in a state that has like intensity enough that it gets them acclimated. Like you mentioned, like getting them ready for that chaos. Cause practice I've seen it personally as an athlete and I've seen it in the outside looking in is like, it's going through the motion. Each rep is like, obviously, like I said, it's still a game. You still need to know this is not going to be the end all be all. But at the same time, it's like, if I practice it 50 reps this way, what's going to happen for the one rep that counts when the game is on the line, you think it's going to just, Snap. And I always tell my clients personally, I'll be like, you could execute at that crucial moment with that lack of intensity, that lack of repetition at that level. But would you want to leave that to chance, you know? Yeah, if you're not in the same brain state, right, you can even look at it as when you're when you're practicing, if it's not at the same level of intensity uh, or style that you're doing or mind state that you are in a game, then you're essentially doing all of your reps with a different hormonal and neurotransmitter profile than when you're actually playing the game. And if those things are too different, then it's almost like you're going into the game a different player and you, you haven't done those reps yet. So I do think that training needs to be able to bring in a certain level of intensity. And it's important for the athletes just to understand that concept and be able to put themselves in that mind state, in that physical while they're doing those reps and training, but by the time they get to play, it's all very familiar. Right. So this next part, I want to ask you, so this is what I'm going to do. We talked about a little off camera. So I want to give you executive athlete or executive performer athlete, and we'll say soldier, or we can say tactical because I can throw in um, police officers, firefighters, because I'm sure you work with all those different demographics. So I'm going to give you a scenario and out of the three, I want you the best, I guess, a quick summary of how the best respond for each, each demographic. So you go executive, athlete, tactical. So for example, I might say something like, okay. 
you just had a big defeat or a loss or something like that. And then you say executive athlete tactical. All right. So okay. let's just go with that one. Just suffered a, a big defeat or failure. What would you give them to deal with that from a coaching standpoint? So I don't mean to, to throw off your question here, but the answer is going to be the same for all, for three. all three. And I thought you were going to say that it when might I asked have this. slight. It might have slight nuances based on the, the situation, but they're all human, which means that their physical, mental, and emotional system is all relatively the same. They're just doing different actions, mm -hmm. right? So somebody has suffered a defeat, right? That defeat leaves an emotional signature on us. That emotional signature starts to create thought patterns. That thought pattern starts to create the way that we act. Right. So it's this is kind of a negative loop spiral. Typically, we're going down this negative loop. We feel bad. We start thinking bad. And that keeps going. Hey, you know, maybe I shouldn't keep don't doing this. You know, nobody likes me. I'm always going to get beaten. And then they start, you know, shelling up. They create different posture. They're not as outspoken, whatever it is. So the path to that is one, recognize the emotion. Right. So for all three of these people, the executive, the athlete, and the tactical person. They're feeling it in their own different way. It might be a pit in their chest. It might be an increased heart rate. It might be, uh, you know, they slouch. It might be the way that they respond to their significant other. Once you understand and notice the way that you typically respond under defeat, you can catch it. Oh, that's my typical thought pattern. That's my typical behavior pattern. Once I can recognize the typical patterns, that then becomes my positive trigger for um, essentially performance oriented thinking, right? Or visualization. So we would go into resetting the nervous system, right? Creating better brain waves by using breathing, by using visualization, um, and then start to bring on the positive ones. And I would also say that the journaling, the mental processing that I mentioned before is going to be incredibly powerful because it's going to allow us to clear that kind of cloud sitting around our heads so we can see clearly and imprint a new mental model, right? It's almost like um, you just took a blow to a muscle. The muscle is messed up. We have to heal it first and then re-strengthen it in a new way. Um, so that would be essentially the, the process for all three of them. Recognize, reset the nervous system, clear the emotion and then re-engage in a new way, basically like write a new code, a positive code in your head. Basically building that default network. So that's, so do you believe in the, the term when people say you revert to your uh, lowest form of practice or I, I might be misquoting. It was something along the lines of when you're in that fight or flight mode or stress response mode that you're technically not doing your peak performance, but more so your modified version of, of your default mode of practice or something like that. Have yeah, absolutely. Or you could think of it as, you know, an emotional state that goes back years, right? The more stressed out you are, you know, we've heard of like at, adults acting like children because they literally are. They're literally acting as if that, you know, it was their seven-year-old self when something happened that created that emotional nature. Um, you know, or it's the same thing, you know, they talked about in military teams, you know, the team is only as fast as the slowest guy. So you have to make sure that everybody is able to perform and keep up. Nice. So going with that saying how you revert to stages, like say, for example, something like 
PTSD, that's a term that get used a lot in a lot of different populations. Now, I know originally it got brought off more so with military, uh, disasters, uh, victims of sexual assault. That's usually where I think it gets most utilized, but I see it getting used more colloquially with like, say, a bad breakup. But just in general, the term PTSD, post-traumatic stress. So saying like the encoding of that traumatic event, I've heard people use the term post-traumatic growth. And that the fact that when that trauma, that trigger gets uh, activated, that some people, they thrive instead of faltering. So, you know, like going back to what you're saying, like programming your body, programming your nervous system, is there ways that you personally use, maybe not with yourself, but even with clientele that help them maybe adjust to that? Because you're not trying to like, you know, clinically change anything, but you're saying, how do I respond yeah. in these states? Yeah, I think the only difference between the person that sees it as gross and the person that sees it as growth and the person that sees it as stress is that the person that sees it as growth is taking an active role in creating growth, right? Like I said, our brains have a negativity bias, which means they're wired for survival. They're always, we're always looking for the threat right? we're always reverting back. So that growth needs to be intentional. So that person is just able to recognize the trigger that's creating the stress response and they're able to reformulate the story in their head to see it as growth. Oh, here is an, here is an example of me, you know, of a point in time where I can actually practice becoming a better person. But you can only do that if you recognize what's going on. And a lot of people can't recognize it in the moment, right? And even people that are really good at it, something will stress them out enough where, you know, there's no way to recognize it. So it's important always to reflect afterwards and to go back in and say, okay, um, you know, what just happened there, whether it was 10 minutes ago, an hour ago, or earlier that day or yesterday. That's interesting because when I work with some clients, I'll say something like, so what was your mind state when it happened? Even if it's a good thing, because people always say, if you mess up, but what about when you win or thrive? And it's like, I don't know. I just went out there and did it. And it's like, I always tell them like, that's great that you executed how you're supposed to, but it's like, you still should know because if you want to replicate these behaviors, you need to be conscious, like you said, and aware of what you did. Cause I would hate to be like, man, that was the, it's like saying you cook a, a good recipe or something or a good dish and you don't remember how you made it. And it's like, that tasted good. You want to make it again. Now what? It's like, ah, I guess I got to start from yeah. scratch every time. And like you said, a good point too, a few minutes ago, like you're going into it as a different person from the the mindset aspect from the actual hormone and neurotransmitter makeup. So I, I'm glad you said that because let's talk about that a little bit, because a lot of people neglect that side when they're more on the mental coaching, they won't talk about neuro neurotransmitters and how that affects your processing hormone levels. Like these are real things. Messengers are actually changing our biological makeup and how our brain takes in information. Yeah. So I, I actually do some testing where we use blood and urine uh, over multiple periods of the day to measure the kind of the neurotransmitter profile of somebody. Uh, and it's really interesting, right? Because these neurotransmitters are so important. You may think that somebody is more motivated than you. Now, there's a lot of different factors that go into that. That person might just have a lifestyle that promotes the neurotransmitter dopamine that gives them more motivation. If you are not sleeping well, drinking a lot of alcohol, blah, 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 your dopamine is going to be lower. And then you think that you are a less motivated person, right? So that we, we can actually get changes in the things like dopamine. I mean, dopamine is one that's really interesting. You know, it's the motivation 
neurotransmitter. A lot of people talk about it all the time, but there's some incredible studies with mice where they can remove the dopamine and um, the mice, even though they're starving, like will not go for the food at all. Or even if they're addicted, mm. you know, to the cocaine will not actually move to go and get it. Um, so, the, and there's many of them, right? You've got anandamide, norepinephrine, uh, serotonin, right? And so if you want to be able to feel good, we need to be able to look, look at the types of activities that help us with our neurotransmitter profile. If we want to, we can see, I can see if somebody's burnt out by their neurotransmitters. Typically everything is flatlined and something like epinephrine, which is adrenaline in the brain is raised significantly. You know, so then they might be running off stress or stimulants or whatever it is, right? And there's a whole host of different cocktails in there. But I think it's important for people to to just understand that we can change, we can have control over the neurotransmitters and hormones just by our thinking patterns and action patterns and vice versa. So it's all this very complex interconnected game. Uh, and that's why a lot of times I go to the, the neuroscientists and neuroendocrinologists to, to ask them questions and learn. No, that's, that's great because going back to the, the holistic thing, it's like, like you said, one could be influencing the other. Are you feeling this way because of the stress you're perceiving or is the stress you're actually physically enduring making it harder for you to get sleep? And I know you talk about sleep a lot and it's like, that's something I think more and more people out of all the things when it comes to mental health, I feel sleep is getting a lot of attention now. So I guess that's a good thing, but I guess using the term biohacking, I know sleep is not biohacking because you, you got to sleep, but it's like, they're using sleep as an end all be all like mental health is important. So, you, or getting sleep is good for your mental health and your mental performance. So make sure you get six, eight hours, but it's like, okay, what after that? It's like maybe having a car that has the best engine, the best tires, the, all the specs you need, but you don't know how to drive. Like, <laughs> what are you going to do if that nice, Ferrari or whatever yeah. it is, but yeah, you got the engine, you got the car, but you can't drive. And I see that a lot of that is like we talked about earlier, like how we approach it, our more multidimensional approach isn't getting enough attention because I guess the mass media or the mainstream media is going to push more so simpler things. And I'm not against that, right? I get it. It's easier to just say, oh, sleep two more hours versus saying actively be in the moment, journal down thoughts practice um, box breathing is like you're asking for more things, but I guess that's the thing. We need to be more active in our mental health and performance. Yeah. But it goes both ways, right? If you don't sleep well, you will affect your mental health. But if your mental health is affected, you also won't sleep well. <laughs> right. So there's a, there are two sides of that coin. And I, and I, I tried to work on both, right? There are things that keep us up at night, right? That keep us from falling, falling asleep that are difficult thought or emotional patterns. And if I totally screw up the sleep schedule or, or do something that's messing it up, I notice that the next day, a lot of those feelings that I want to have are not there because it's a lot more difficult to get them. So, so all interesting points and everything is so interconnected. And uh, I wish we humans knew more about it, but I think we're still learning. I think it's getting there. I think it's where I think where fitness was probably in the 80s is where mental and neural health is right now. Like people knew about working out because of what bodybuilders and uh, Richard Simmons doing the little aerobics. So that was their only like exposure to fitness was that. But then uh, along the years, like the last yeah. 10 years, people know about, OK, there's more to getting in physical health. So I feel that's where we are in that journey. And hopefully we get there sooner than later, because 
we obviously know, like you just said, it all plays together in that physical component. And that's something I guess I've seen too. People will practice the mental side. They'll get to sleep. They'll do the mindfulness. They'll do the box breathing. They'll get better thought patterns, but they won't move. And you being an athlete, a soldier. So it's like, what's your talk or your implications in your practice with uh, getting people to move? So for getting people to move and, and being active, it's all about the reason why. Is that, is that kind of a, I'm curious if that's a pattern that you follow as well, like understanding the reasons for why they're doing anything. Oh yeah. Cause um, the thing is, like I said, I get questioned a lot. So when someone asks me, I have to give rationale. They're not just going to be like, okay, I very, even with my um people who don't know a lot about this, stuff, they'll still be like, why are we doing this? So a lot of my movement-based stuff will be centered around more uh, kind of specific. So I don't really do like fitness or like strength training and stuff like that. That's not my, my um, scope of practice anymore, but I'll have stuff like, okay, we're doing this drill that requires you responding to external stimulus, like a, a stroop color where the color is incongruent with the word and they'll have cones set up at a specific distance. And I'll explain to them, okay, you're making a process external to you. So therefore I don't know what's coming next. And then you have to make a goal directed behavior in this case, moving to that color. So if it's red written in green, the color would be green. They need to one, what am I looking at? Oh, it's green. Then two, identify where to go. Then three, get your body there in a, a systematic way versus just scrambling. Cause you say like general exercise, like I said, I don't dabble that anymore. It's more so as a means to yeah. end is, did I burn enough calories or did I lift too much rate weights or reps, which obviously is needed. But with mine, that's how I always let them know, like, this is why, this is where we're going. Our brain is reinforcing the behavior, the response, mm -hmm. error detection, and do it again. Yeah, and I think athletes can understand that a little bit better. And, and for a lot of other people, the, the importance is the why behind it. So I don't come in and I give a very specific physical plan. You know, most people know what they need to do. They just don't do it, right? So I come in with the frame of, okay, how do we actually get somebody to hold themselves accountable to the physical plan that they set themselves or the physical plan that they found on the internet or got coaching for? And so the reason for why we do anything has to be stronger than the, the, any sort of mental discomfort. Right. When we get out of bed in the morning, our body is going to say, just stay in bed for a while. You don't need to do that. We have to have a deep reasoning. It has to be, you know, I want to be able to live longer so I can see my grandkids. I want to be able to, you know, compete in a sport, or I know that I'm going to feel like crap the rest of the day if I don't get up and move and do some mobility and breathe, whatever it is, before I start work. And if I do that, then it's going to snowball over time. I'm never going to reach my goals. And looking back on that, I'm going to have massive regrets on my life. That's a stronger reason why than just, oh, let me stay in bed a little bit longer. But if you don't have that reason, you'll just stay in bed, right? A lot of people look at, they look at somebody like me, and I think that um, you know, there might be anomalies out there. I can put myself relatively normal, right? And so... I train every day in the morning. There has never been a day where I wake my eyes up and I go, perfect time to train. Let's go. Can't wait. <laughs> right? I always am getting out of bed a little bit slow. You know, oh, would be a feeling it would be nicer just to sit here for a little while longer, close my eyes again. That's completely natural. But I know that my why is built in much deeper so that. I can get myself to engage in the activity through discipline and accountability 
and then I get the benefits on the back end. So typically what I'm doing is not giving them the what or how, it's helping them find the why. And through finding the why, then I know that they'll be able to put themselves in a state of growth to continue to expand their physical abilities. I love that because it, like when I used to do general fitness, one of the biggest things when I would train clients was that it's like, oh man, I hate training. And I'll look at the, and I'll joke with them like, so why do you pay me? And like deep down, I'm thinking like, mm -hmm. but for real though, and I would ask them this is before I knew what I knew now, but it's just like, that didn't sit well with me being a former athlete and someone who did take their health seriously. It's like, why not? Like, why would you hate something if you hate it that bad? Why do it? Because you could say, at least I got here. But now you have these this conflicting thoughts of, I don't want to be here, but I came. And you can argue, okay, you're here, but how long would that last for you just give up? So like you said, you woke up not saying this is the perfect time or the perfect day. It's like, no, I understand why I'm doing it. Let me put into action. And it's like, the funniest thing, after you do it right, it's almost like, ah, oh, I'm glad I did that. And you feel great, but it's like that barrier of saying, yeah. Just do it first. I know it's cliche to say just do it, like Nike, right? But it's like it's it's almost that simple. It's just getting over that that hindrance. Like you said, we're primed for negativity, right? And it's like our brain's saying, "Hey, moving for no apparent reason is a waste of your energy." So don't do it. But you're like, "Well, there is a reason yeah. for this. There is a why." Your brain might be saying, "I'm protecting you. Yeah. Like I'm here to protect you, man." But it's like, but this will make us better. <laughs> you got to override that thought, I guess. Yeah, and I'd say you know there has never been a day where I haven't gotten up and done something difficult in the morning and it hasn't had a positive effect on the entire rest of my day, not once. And so being able to engage in something physically or mentally difficult in the morning has this huge effect on oxygenating the body and brain and turning on certain hormones and all of these things we need to feel and perform good. So, you know, and I, I would doubt I could find anybody that could that could say otherwise to that. That's that's a real biohacking. <laughs> Just doing that. <laughs> All right. So before we wrap Absolutely. it up, I always like to go over two take like granted, they've gotten probably like 50 take-home messages out of this whole conversation, but the end on a note, two take-home messages could be simple phrase, could be talking point, could be anything before we wrap it up. So two take-home messages for the audience that I want them to put in when they hear this at the end of this podcast, they're going to get up and do it right now. Okay. Or try. The visual picture that you create in your mind affects everything. It affects the way you think, feel, and act. So always start with the visual picture first. Perform whatever you're trying to perform in the perfect way, in the perfect way that you want to feel. That's much more likely that you'll actually do it that way and feel that way. That's kind of one thing to do in the moment. The second thing to do is build our awareness. So at the end of today, you can go back and you can look at your schedule and you can just jot down notes, how you felt, how you acted, how you responded and start to just get familiar with that. And that's kind of step one. If you have those two skills, you can do a lot. That was straight to the point. Love it. That's exactly what I was looking for. All right, so plug your uh, social medias, your business, your, and I'll put that up on the screen, of course, uh, what, we, what you got going. Yeah, um, the easiest way to find me is probably Instagram at Pierce, P-E-A-R-C-E underscore C2. I uh, also have a, the business that we run this under, which is Paradigm Labs. It's Paradigm underscore Labs underscore uh, on Instagram as well. 
that should give you all the information you need. All right. Thank you so much for coming on. It's a great conversation. I hope my audience loves it. I think they will because this is literally having two people from different philosophies, but similar uh, outcomes. So I, I think this will be very good. Yeah, so do I. Appreciate you having me. All right. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And as always, get your mind right.